If you're deciding to serve dessert, you're deciding to serve dessert. Your child doesn't need to perform in order to earn it. Welcome to Didn't I Just Feed You, a podcast about feeding kids. Hi, I'm Megan. And I'm Stacy. This week, we are reheating an episode from our very first season of Didn't I Just Feed You, <laughs> which is so funny to go back and listen to. This is an interview that I did with renowned child nutrition expert, Jill Castle. Jill is a dietitian. She's done tons of work specifically around family and kids, but she's also a mom of four. So usually with these reheated episodes, we just publish the episode with very little editing. And we're just like, here you go. We're reheating. We think this would be useful. But this is literally five years ago, guys. It's so long ago. Yeah. Our kids are way older. We have a different perspective that's come from just time and our kids growing. There's more though. There's actually been kind of a social awakening around diet culture, fat phobia. I think we're just in a different place for a whole lot of reasons. I mean, I think even just thinking about how we think about our own bodies and food and feeding has shifted in the last five years. So it seemed like it might make sense to have a little conversation, Megan, before we jump into the interview, which I do think still has a lot of really important takeaways and gems. But I also have commentary on it, as you would imagine. <laughs> you I know do. the woman who gave us a podcast have commentary? <laughs> <laughs> commentary. Um, I also want to acknowledge that how we record has also changed a lot. So don't be surprised if the interview audio is a little lower quality than what you've come to know and expect from Didn't I Just Feed You. It's funny because Samantha, our producer, has been with us since the very first episode. But like we were just like, oh, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Like in echoey places, sometimes recording on earbuds. So I know that Sam, when she goes back to re-edit this, there's new tools even since it's been five years will do her best to make it sound really great. But just that's a little bit of a, a caveat before we get into it. And I, we both re-listened to it ahead of talking about this. So I feel like even though what, you you know, Stacey said, oh, so much of like diet, diet culture and like how we approach it is differently. I still really felt like your conversation with Jill was really helpful, especially ahead of Halloween and all the holidays where there's like lots of sweets and treats coming up. So I don't want to go too far without saying, Stacey, when you re-listen to this episode, what stood out the most to you? That's a really, that's a tough question because there were things that stood out to me about me and things that stood out to me about what Jill was saying. I know I already mentioned fat phobia and diet culture and like that, my perspective on those things have changed drastically, but that's also because the culture has changed quite a bit. There weren't even words for this that we were using as a regular part of our, you know, conversation five years ago. Also, the conversation around neurodivergence oh, yes. was also not as big. And that really stood out to me. Because one of the things that I will say is, you know, I had this big aha moment. Isaac was 11. Oliver was eight. And it was like, I think it'll be, you'll be able to tell that I was still in the early stages of trying to even understand how diet culture impacted me. Like I could tell there was something, but I was still kind of grappling with it in the context of like, how do I parent these kids around food? I'm much more clear on how it has impacted me and then how in turn that informed my decisions around food when my guys were younger. But then I do remember being like, yeah, give the kids sugar. Like it's much more important that they have a healthy relationship with food than when then, you know, we label foods good and bad. And there's a big part of our conversation around edging kids towards self-regulation Mm -hmm. And I talk about how I was doing it at the time, even around Isaac and his habits with his phone, not just around food. But that conversation, I would not have the conversation today in the same way, having a deeper understanding and more sensitivity to neurodivergence. 
I think that Jill's advice will really resonate with a lot of people and be helpful to a lot of people. But I do wonder if there are people for whom her advice just doesn't hit the nail on the head because their kids are grappling with different challenges than my kids. Do you know what I mean? I just think that there's a neurodivergence piece of the conversation and more research has come out around that. In fact, a lot of Jill's approach comes out of Ellen Satter's division of responsibility. I don't know. Do you, let's should we take a step back and talk about what that is? Yeah, we should because it's honestly been a long time since we've talked about it, and it. I'm, I may get it wrong, so oh, you'll have to correct me because it. it has been a minute. But it's this idea that parents are in charge of like the timing of meals and what is served, but the kids are in charge of how much of of what is served they eat. Yeah. And is there one more thing the kids are in charge of? Yeah, it's like how much, what, and how much. And how much, yes. Mm-hmm. But what's the what's come out about that yeah. that is changed? Well, it's it's been challenged in yeah. the last five years. I found a really, really great RD when I was looking into this episode again and re-listening. Her name is Noreen Hunani. We'll put the link in okay. uh, in our podcast player. And she also founded a group called RDs for Neurodiversity. Oh, and interesting. She's really taken issue with the division of responsibility model because neurodivergence aside, kids develop at really different rates <laughs> and have really different strengths and weaknesses. And it's just not so simple to say like, you know, it makes sense in every family for the parents to be in charge of this and for the kids to be in charge of that. Like, that's just not how it falls out in every family. So there's another model called responsive feeding. Okay. I couldn't go too deep into it. I just think it's really interesting for parents who are interested to look into it. Noreen and some of her colleagues have been outspoken about the fact that they feel like responsive feeding has also been co-opted by diet culture. And like, that in some contexts, especially bite-sized social media, let's make this something that everybody can get behind, that it isn't always represented in the all-inclusive way in which it was originally designed. But responsive feeding is really about relationship building with your kid and really like, we've made joke of honoring your kid's preferences But like in a really deep way, especially for kids who are having like anxiety around food or have pretty serious eating challenges, it's really less about exposure and what they eat and controlling that, even if the way you're controlling it is to try not to control it. And it's really about honoring their experience around food and building a relationship with your child and triangulating how you feed them into that. Anyway... This kind of goes off in a different direction than sugar. But all this to say that I do think Jill's approach is rooted in some thinking that has been modernized and has shifted a little bit in the last five years. So interesting. I want to take a little step back because you brought up like that Jill's advice might not be as sound for parents of neurodiverse kids. And Immediately, I go to ADD, ADHD, and like their unique needs for eating. But when you're talking about responsive feeding and you're talking about relationship building, are you thinking neurodiverse also includes kids who deal with anxiety and depression or who might be prone to eating disorders, which are also neurological disorders? And highly correlated with neurodiversity. Yes. Okay, good. I think that's good context here for this conversation. It reminds me of our conversation with Jessica Wilson, where she questions intuitive eating. Now, guys, let's not get into that debate. (laughs) But like (laughs) the point is that like, yes, intuitive eating is going to work for a whole lot of people, but let's not make this the end all be all. Like intuitive eating does not work for a whole lot of people because some people don't have a strong intuition around what to eat. I talk about this with Julie Dillon Duffy around my PCOS. Some people just don't have 
a kind of schedule where they can allow for intuitive eating because they work two jobs that their hours are very defined. They're not just at a desk where they can eat lunch whenever their body says, oh, it's time to eat lunch. So it's just like complicated. So that's just a larger context. Let's talk about sugar just for a few minutes and then let's throw to Jill. I will say that I did find some articles that I think were very interesting. Okay, Ms. Research Coordinator. (laughs) Recent articles and guys, the research, having come from a background in education and research, it's pretty easy to make research support what you want it to support. Like it's very important to understand the methodology, the sample and all that stuff, which an article in the Washington Post, like the journalist may or may not have taken a look at that stuff. So take it all with a grain of salt. But there is research that suggests that sugar has no effect on children's behavior even children who are neurodiverse, who have ADHD, and that there is a lot of research that also suggests that when parents perceive a difference in children's behavior around sugar, it's usually in contexts where there are tons of other stimuli, i.e. a birthday party. There is also research, Virginia Soleil-Smith, talks about this in her writing. And she's like a full-on proponent of like, let the kids eat what the kids eat. Like, let's not, it's not good. It's not bad. There's no moral judgment around any food. She talks about, yes, there is sound research that suggests that a diet that's very high in sugar does have, isn't great for our health. Yes. I don't think that piece is diet culture, but like are we splitting hairs? Are there all different phases that we go through? I mean, this is talking about chronic high sugar intake. This is not about Halloween or dessert. Yes. Okay. Wait, because I got some really excited. Yeah. Jessica Wilson has actually been doing a series on ultra processed food, which is a lot of like when people are like, oh, a diet high in sugar, they're talking about like added sugar. And we see that a lot in these ultra processed foods. Uh, Jessica Wilson is pushing back on that and saying, no, like that's not necessarily true. And maintenance phase also has a really great episode about the sugar to behavior correlation and why some of that like long, long standing, often cited research is not sound. Um, So I think this is like a very interesting look at sugar Yeah. now, five years later. And I think that basically what Jill says is to have a strategy and listen so you understand what she means by that. I think that sound. When she describes her own personal strategy, it very much aligns with how I wanted to feed my kids back then and what I was striving for. I wonder if we had a conversation with her today and we said, like, would that still, would those still be your choices? I wonder what she would say, because to me, they still feel a little bit restrictive. Yeah. But for context, all of her kids are now grown and out of the house. So she has a little less control over what's in front of them. Whereas both of us, we're five years later and we're still feeding our kids, but at different ages and stages. Yeah. So before we throw to Jill, can we talk about what's different for you today real quick? And I'll talk about what's different for me today. So how old were Ella and Emmett then? They're eight and 11 now. So minus five years, Ella would have been seven and Emmett would have been four. That makes sense. I think that's right. Okay. So much has changed. Yeah. (laughs) I think because like for greater context, if you haven't listened to like the whole archive of didn't I just feed you episodes, there are like 300 of them. I think I was still very much in my own disordered eating, not like from a clinical standpoint, but just struggling with restriction for myself. And so I was doing it a little bit more for my kids. And especially when they were little, it was very easy to control the sugar the treats coming in, like I prided myself on them mostly having homemade things and not really like packaged gummies and only like having so much Halloween candy, but they were so little. And in the time since then, I've unraveled my own relationship with sugar, which is that I love it. I love candy. I think of candy as the most like 
modern, luxurious product. If you think about the amount of innovation that is created for candy of all shapes, sizes, colors, flavors, sourness to be available to us, it's kind of amazing. And I just think of it as like a really easy to access luxury for a lot of people. So even three years ago, I would have been just so proud that we have a candy jar that the kids have unlimited, unfettered access to. But I think I'm in a season right now where that is challenging to me, in part because I've been so lax. I haven't had a plan. And I have Ella with like a gallon-sized zippy of parade candy in her bedroom right now that she's eating from, which is like fine. It's not that different from the candy jar, but there's something about it I'm not You're struggling with. I'm struggling with. What about you? What would you say has changed in five years? Yeah. I mean, I think we're very similar. What's very interesting to me is that I actually think, I don't think I would have said this even just two years ago. I think we've been aligned the whole way. Yeah. But I always thought of you as being in a different place than me. And I think it had to do with how we were both grappling with our own uh, unraveling of our relationship with diet culture and how we grew up. Whereas I feel like you were very outspoken about like, yeah, they can have like, that was your reaction. Like they can have a candy jar, like it's unlimited, blah, blah, blah. And that brought you comfort that you could do that. But really it was also, they were young and it was, you were still in control in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm not willing to do that. But I think ultimately we both like wanted the same level of control and we're trying to do this, manage the same things that were really about managing those things in ourselves. And I think we've come to a really similar place. Like it's been like our timelines have been slightly off, but we went from that to like, really being comfortable, letting everything go. And then having these older kids who, frankly, I don't think we love the way Isaac and Ella eat. No. And I think we let go of it. Like I'm not belly aching and worrying about him anymore. Like I went through some phases. Long time didn't I just feed you listeners will know. I've been very open. I think also, I'm going to say something. Don't be mad at me. I think that as open as you are, you're much more private than me. Oh, yes. That's I why would I that's actual facts. Okay. So like I think I've shared more. I think when you're vulnerable, you're vulnerable and very honest. And when you're not, you're not like lying or putting on a facade. You just have a boundary that I don't have as much. So people who've listened for a long time have really heard me worry about Isaac. Like there were moments where I was like, are we dealing with an eating disorder? Like, you know, I was like a Greek mom, like belly aching and worrying out loud all the time. And I definitely don't do that anymore, but I don't love the way he eats. I think it kind of sucks and it's a bummer. Yeah. So I think the difference might be for me that is like optically Ella looks healthy. Her relationship with food looks healthy. But I see the the bag of candy in the room. So it is. And do you think that's not healthy that she has a bag of candy in her room? Without context. No, but with context, yes, because she often will like not eat very much at dinner and then choose to fill up on that. And I just think. Is that on how that sounds. (laughs) So it's like the thing. Okay. It's like the thing, right? Like, okay, she's getting enough calories, right? She's Mm -hmm. getting enough calories. There's no health indicators that anything is wrong with her diet. So I have been able to be like, oh, She's, it's not disordered eating. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. But she's okay. Yeah. But there's something. But it does bother me. It bo- I have a mom instinct. And I think it might be less disordered eating and more hormones slash anxiety or depression for her that yeah. she's struggling with. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. I don't worry about Isaac's eating at all. I think Isaac probably has a really good relationship with food. I think because he just eats whatever the he wants and he doesn't yeah, have hang ups. That's really hard too, right? Like, I'm like, why don't you want to eat things that are like protein and getting veggies in? And like, I actually what, know all the you? reasons why she wants <laughs> 
Sometimes, yeah. No, sometimes I do too, but sometimes I, yeah. I mean, Isaac's older though. Let's remember that Isaac's older. Yes, yes. So that's huge. Like he's quite a bit older. I, You know, for me, it's interesting. Oliver, all that belly aching I did about my first kid, Oliver is the one because I see Oliver eat beyond his fullness. Like Isaac won't eat. Like when Isaac's full, he's like, I'm done. Even yes, whether it's ice Ella. cream or whether it's pizza. Oliver's like, this is so good. <laughs> me and Mike are like, we know. <laughs> like we're all like shoving our veins because it's so delicious and we can't help it. Like he literally will joke about eating ice cream not too far from home because he's going to have to go poop right away. I'm like, dude, <laughs> like, you eat so much dairy and ice cream that you have, sorry guys, I don't mean to make it gross, but diarrhea, like maybe adjust. And he's like, yeah, why would I do that? Like it's delicious. So there's that. I feel like maybe <laughs> Ella and Oliver are closer in age, yeah, even though sure. their personality, like Isaac and Ella's personalities are a little bit more aligned. There is some of that where I'm like, do you, are you not correlating the thing of mm -hmm. like, you have a terrible bellyache or mm -hmm. like, you're so <laughs> tired from like the day. I mean, yes, you should be tired, but like, maybe are you not getting fuel the fuel that you need <laughs> or like you're having to spend 25 minutes in the bathroom yes. right after you come out from school <laughs> that feels like like it feels obvious to me and I'm like how are you at 11 like you're not getting this you're so smart like you are such a smart person and such a, such an intuitive person so yeah I my, and like I think my worry comes more of like self-care yeah. of how she's caring for herself and that she's figuring that out yeah yeah it's interesting. It's We've been on a journey in five years. <laughs> We've been on a journey. And what I feel really proud of, even though I would have maybe asked different questions and maybe pushed back in different ways on what Jill was saying, I feel very proud that that is an episode where she gives a what I hope will be a lot of really great takeaways to not everybody, but a large number of people. I think it's a really interesting listen, even if you have kids who are neurodivergent, even if you have kids for whom like a lot of the typical advice around feeding hasn't fit, the way that Jill thinks is very measured and that we had the instinct to seek out a guest like that at the very beginning makes me really proud. So I hope people will enjoy this interview. Twenty twenty four is the year we're focused on finally reducing dinner time overwhelm at Didn't I Just Feed You? And that means making grocery shopping easier and more cost effective, especially when it comes to the foods we all tend to spend the most on, like meat. Enter Butcherbox, where you can count on incredible deals on premium cuts. At ButcherBox, you can choose a curated box or customize your order of 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood to stock your fridge with all the proteins you need for the week, month, or even the year at prices that are hard to come by at the grocery store. That's all your protein shopped for in one shot at great prices delivered to your door with free shipping. Just one change, switching over to ButcherBox, and you guarantee yourself fewer trips to the grocery store and savings that are hard to find at the supermarket. Dinnertime overwhelm be gone. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y and use the code D-I-J-F-Y, short for Didn't I Just Feed You, to choose your free offer and get $20 off. This episode is brought to you with support from Whole Foods. As a resident Greek girl, I am a sucker for Mediterranean flavors and want you to taste the Mediterranean too. Go to Whole Foods Market now and save on regionally inspired products through March 19th. Find sales on animal welfare certified meat, including boneless, skinless, air-chilled chicken breast, bone-in beef short ribs, ground lamb, and more. Save on whole bronzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon. And stock up on Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and if you're over 21, wines from Spain, Greece, and Italy. Grab your ingredients and experiment with family-friendly Mediterranean cuisine today. 
Think Greek-style ground lamb pitas, lemony oven roasted chicken, or bronzino, or instant pot short ribs braised in wine. All simple and delicious. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Do you ever feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of snacks and meals? We get it. That's why we're excited to share Home Threads, the ultimate solution for creating a stylish and functional family space. At HomeThreads.com, discover furniture that can handle the chaos of family life. From wipeable dining chairs to kitchen tables and light fixtures. Or you can just freshen up your kitchen with trays, counter lamps, decor, and other affordable accents that will help you update your kitchen into a room you love spending time in. Head over to HomeThreads.com slash D-I-J-F-Y short for dinner and I just feed you, to get a code for 15% off your first order. Because if you're going to be feeding them three times a day, plus snacks, you deserve a home that feeds your style. Home Threads, love where you live. That's homethreads.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y today to get 15% off your first order. Tonight, I'd like to transport you to Night Falls, a mystical place where a luminescent waterfall glimmers in a starlit clearing amongst ancient pines. You can join me here every Sunday and Tuesday with a podcast of bedtime stories created to help you fall asleep easily. There's truly nothing more relaxing than a story told by firelight. So search Nightfall's Bedtime Stories on your favorite podcast player and gather around the fire for a soothing tale tonight. Let's get to the topic of the day because parents are always talking to Megan and I about this. Sugar, 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 the sugar beast. (laughs) And I want to start our conversation where Megan and I started the conversation with sweets and in particular dessert, right? Mm -hmm. So kids Mm -hmm. are always like, can I have dessert? And Mm -hmm. I want to know as a nutrition expert and as a mom, how do you handle sweets at home? Do you serve dessert regularly or is it a special occasion thing? Like how do you handle it? Well, I have always had my eye on sweets and dessert. I didn't grow up getting a regular dessert at home. That wasn't the way my mom handled sweets. And in fact, I love my mom and she she was an awesome mother. She always made, you know, family meals and uh, was really good in that department. But I remember the day that I discovered peanut M&Ms in her lingerie <laughs> drawer. And I, I think I was... <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think I was I was 10 or 11 and I don't even don't even ask me why I was going through a lingerie drawer, but there <laughs> they were, buried I'm in the back struck corner. I by the fact that you didn't discover <laughs> M&M's peanut M&M's until you were 10 or 11. That's well, amazing. I had, I had discovered them, but they oh, were okay. My mom didn't, you know, my mom was of the uh, here's our budget for the week. And I mm-hmm. think it was like around $100. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to feed a family of six. She was making fresh meals. And, uh, you know, we had all the food groups. She, she was very, very good about that. But she literally would buy one package of cookies for the entire week. And her philosophy was, once these are gone, they're gone. And I'm not going back to the store until next week. I, there will be no more. And of course, with four kids, I mean, those those cookies were gone in a day or two, yeah. flat. <laughs> so when I found the M and M's in the in the lingerie drawer, I was like, "Oh, she's holding out. These must be really special." And of course, I became focused on them, and yes. I would sneak back to her room when. She was busy, you know, in the basement folding laundry or something. I would sneak back and ha- and grab handfuls of those peanut M&Ms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and there was most definitely a psychological link that I developed, mm-hmm. I believe, around uh, sweets being uh, somewhat forbidden or somewhat extra special. And I guess a connection uh, to the fact that, you know, these were something that my mom had to protect and hide from the rest of us. Yep. So because I was raised that way, you know, the way I raised my own children with dessert, it was more of a special occasion thing. So, but I never restricted parties or celebrations or anything like that. My my philosophy has always been, I'm going to create a health haven at home. And when it came to sweets and treats, Uh, I never really packed those in the lunches. We didn't really have a scheduled dessert. However, Mm -hmm. 
We did have every Friday after school ice cream day. So I would pick the kids up from school and we went right to the ice cream parlor or the yogurt shop. On the weekends, you know, they played sports. We had lots of family activities where there were a lot of sweets. And so I did not regulate those. We just were very easygoing about that. And we had dessert on the weekends. There was ice cream. There were, you know, cakes and cookies and pies and things of that nature. But during the work, during the work week or the school week, yeah, I didn't serve a lot. They weren't scheduled in. That was my strategy. And I think what uh, today's parents, what helps them a lot is having a strategy. And it, it's going to yeah. look different for every family. Some families will serve dessert every night, and that's fine. Some families won't feel comfortable with that, and that's okay too. I think the point is to have a strategy so that your kids can expect it and it's predictable and they know when to count on it. Because when it's sort of willy-nilly, it's secretive, it's forbidden, it's eliminated, then the focus starts to to go on those foods. And what we know from the research is that when children feel restricted or experience uh, restriction in that area, they do tend to psychologically focus more on those foods. And even when they're available, lose control of their eating of them. That's so interesting. I mean, my house was definitely had this air of restriction Mm -hmm. For sure. What do you think of this idea of, you know, if you eat your vegetables, then you can have dessert? I mean, mm -hmm. is that a form of restriction? It's actually a form of what we call rewarding. If you look at the scientific literature on feeding and you look up rewarding, mm -hmm. uh, we know that oftentimes sweets and treats are used to incentivize or motivate children to eat vegetables or take another bite or finish their meal. Mm -hmm. And what the research tells us is that when we do that, we think as parents that we're driving a love and a desire for vegetables, for example, but it actually doesn't work out that way. Uh, we actually end up changing our child's food preferences because they start to value those sweets and treats and the hierarchy of food shifts. So those sweets and treats they move to the top of the pyramid. They are they become very desirable for children. And those vegetables do not. They move lower on the pyramid. Oh no. I know. <laughs> it's so it's 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 <laughs> there is such a psychology around eating, particularly in children who are developing their food preferences and their attitudes about food, which obviously drive their actions around food. Oh my gosh, I've been doing it wrong the whole time, Jill. <laughs> I thought I was being so relaxed. I was like, oh, but if you just eat a healthy meal, then sure, like have dessert. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, that's so interesting. So my boys are eight and 11. They're obviously, you know, that's young, I get it. But it's older when you're thinking about child development mm -hmm. and, you know, the setting of preferences. Can we make a shift now? I mean, mm -hmm. especially with the 11 year old. I mean, and how can we do that? Like, does that get paired with a conversation with him Absolutely. where I'm explicit about, you know, like, hey, we've been doing it this way and I've been doing some thinking. Like, I think we're going to approach it this way now where I can help him think differently about how we're going to think about like sugar and sweets. Yes, absolutely. Especially for that age, having those conversations and communicating about food openly and sharing what your philosophy is and what your strategy is and even saying, I've been doing this wrong. We're going to change things and this is what we're going to do can be really helpful, especially if you can empower your child in the decision making. One of the things that I teach families to do is uh, follow this 90-10 rule. The 90-10 rule goes like this. 90% of what children eat are nourishing, growing foods. It's your food groups, proteins, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, dairy, healthy fats. 10% are sweets and treats. So desserts, candy, cookies, soda, sugary beverages, chips things that are fried, like French fries. So what we want to do is we want to try and strike that balance of 90-10 on average, day in and day out. So what that shakes down to be is about one or two sweets or treats a day for, for most children. Okay. And once we sort of figure out that balance, and a lot of families will be 
you know, they'll be 70, 30 and it's okay. It's really hard to get to 10 if you're, it's, it's hard to get to 10% fun foods if you're at 30%. So we just want to sort of inch our way there. But the key to the whole um, 90-10 rule is helping the child understand that balance and teaching him or her what 90% would look like or what foods would go in the 90% category and teaching them this 10% fun foods and allowing them to choose which fun food they will have for the day and empowering them to make those choices. So for example, you might say to your child, we're going to change things a little bit. You know, I've noticed that we're getting a little out of control with sweets and it's not Mm -hmm. even, you know, that I'm getting out of control with sweets. I'm just noticing there's a lot of sweets in your life from going to church or going to community gatherings or sports events or school parties. There's just a lot. And so we need to have a a strategy or a system for managing this. And you can teach your child this 90-10 rule and, and say to him, you know, when you are thinking about which fun foods that you want to eat during the day, you pick the ones that matter most to you. So you might be offered a soda, but if you don't care about soda, pick water instead. If, you're, if you really want dessert that I'm offering tonight, or you know you're having ice cream after your sports banquet, you know, save yourself for the stuff that really matters to you. And so you can start to have these conversations with your children and have them sort of gravitate gradually uh, to that 90-10 rule and understand, and it empowers them to make the decisions that are, are important to them, as opposed to you and I saying, you're going to have the chocolate cake at the birthday party, and that is right. it. I mean, and I love this because one of the things for our listeners with tweens and older kids, one of the things that I'm working on in general with Isaac, who's 11, is with his behavior across the board. You know, Mm -hmm. it started with screen time, but I'm realizing that we need to work on this in general. Is him enforcing his own behavior instead of me being the police? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So... You know, he recently, he'll be mortified if he ever listens to this and hears that I'm saying this, but I recently took his phone away. His phone basically has, he's only 11, but we live in New York City and sometimes he does walk, you know, a few places in like safe areas by himself or he walks from the bus stop home alone. So we gave him a phone Almost everything on it is disabled except like his ESPN app (laughs) to Mm -hmm. check scores Mm -hmm. and texting and calling so he can reach me. But it was, you know, he was given, can spend this much time in the morning checking scores, you know, 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night, checking scores, checking in with your friends, and I'm going to stop being the enforcer. Mm -hmm. If you spend longer, you may not get caught the first time or the second time, or the third time, but you'll probably eventually get caught. Mm-hmm. And then and then your phone will be taken away. Like, that's just how it works. And he did, and his phone got taken away. There was no warnings. There was no, you know, like, okay, no next time, or threats, or mm-hmm. counts to three, because we really want him to start, really, like, self controlling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I love that this 90-10 rule gives him something to really start thinking about himself. Like, how Mm -hmm. can I regulate my own eating instead of us kind of watching over him all the time and telling him what to eat? Because more and more, he's going to be out there eating on his own at friend's house, you know, going out to lunch on his own in middle school soon. So I love how that can empower him. And for listeners with younger kids, even as you kind of enforce it along the way, it does give them this kind of runway where you can give them a rule that they can kind of own as they get older. Right. And I think, you know, you have to, I think as a parent, what works well, what I see working well, is when you have a comprehensive strategy. So you're not just saying, here's a 90-10 rule, child, and you need to learn it, and this is going to be this is going to be a home run for our family. This is going to be the one thing that works. No, you have to also have a strategy for yourself as a parent. How often are you offering these foods? Yeah. When are you offering them? How are you talking about them? Are they predictable for your child so that they can count on them? Are you following through with that predictability? 
So that whole framework has to be there. And then, of course, you know, food choices and what what foods that you choose to serve and how you balance things. You know, if you're serving a high sugary dessert, is your meal higher in vegetables and whole grains and fruit um, on the table? You know, so you're sort of balancing that sugar with healthier options. So it's not just one little trick. And I think that, unfortunately, sometimes we as parents think, just tell me what to do. And I'll do this one thing yes. and it'll work forever. <laughs> but it's this yeah. whole comprehensive strategy and <laughs> and having a few tools in your tool belt and knowing when to pull out certain ones and relax on others and rely on some other things. But I absolutely believe that uh, we need to be communicating with our children and helping them self-regulate because they are born natural self-regulators. In the, in the manner in which we feed them, we oftentimes can unfortunately disarm that self-regulation. Mm-hmm. But we need to work hard to preserve that because that's the whole goal is to raise an adult who is self-regulated, who doesn't need somebody to tell them to go on a diet, who doesn't need somebody to tell them to stop eating, who doesn't need somebody to tell them what to eat. We want to raise kids who know that internally for themselves. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so smart. I mean, I I often say, you know, we're not trying to raise kids who love kale specifically. <laughs> we're trying to raise kids who have a good relationship with food mm-hmm. and then they'll make healthy decisions whether or not they like kale or, you know, right. specifically. Like they'll like healthy foods and they'll be able to make healthy decisions. Exactly. I just think parents get so stuck on, you know, like these are the healthy foods of the moment. Like mm-hmm. I want my kid to like this food, mm-hmm. you know, and that's really not the point. Um, I want to quickly go back to one thing, though, that my mind is lingering on with this dessert thing, thinking Mm -hmm. now more about my younger son. Okay, so let's say, you know, we change our dessert rules or thinking about your dessert rules, like every Friday, you know, there was a dessert or on the weekends, there were dessert, moving away from this rewarding approach. Mm -hmm. So your kid, you put a well-balanced meal on their plate and they take two bites of the, you know, brown rice Mm -hmm. and they nibble on one little piece of broccoli and they leave all the chicken, all the Mm -hmm. protein. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm ready for Friday dessert. It's it's Friday ice cream time. No problem. Sure, let's serve up the ice cream. Yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> Some of your listeners might not like this answer, but I believe that we need to have a no strings attached philosophy around sweets. So if you decide- I kind of love this. This is groundbreaking. You're blowing my mind, Jill. I love it. Okay. Good. I do. I feel like when we start to attach strings to whether your child's having dessert or not, it becomes this convoluted interaction. And I really think that if you're deciding to serve dessert, you're deciding to serve dessert. Your child doesn't need to perform in order to earn it. It's just, that's your day of having dessert. Now, if your child, you know, just eats a little bit of dinner and then goes for the dessert, that's the way it shakes down. If Uh two hours later, they're like, I'm hungry, I don't Uh feel good. Then you say, (laughs) you know what? Sorry, bud, you didn't have dinner. Let's make it, maybe we make a different decision next time because your body's not feeling very good right now. This is what happens when we just eat sugar or just have dessert. So um, I'm always going to serve dessert on Friday night so you can count on it. But I think what needs to happen or what you need to think about is having a better, eating a better dinner so that you feel better later. You can always yes. have the dessert. So just reassuring your child that, you know, dessert is part of Friday night dinner and you don't have to perform to get it. It's there. You can have it. But if you choose not to eat your dinner, you might not feel so great. And so how can you, you know, how can we make this a different outcome? How can you eat better at dinner and get your dessert? Because see, kids will worry. They worry that they're not going to get what they really want. And we don't ever want them to worry that they're going to have their dessert taken away or they have to eat more to get it. We don't want that for them because that disrupts their self-regulation. So we want to reinforce or assure them that, yeah, you're we're serving dessert on Friday, no matter how you eat. If it's just ice cream you eat for dinner, then it's just ice cream. But 
The kitchen's closed after that. There will be no other snacks. You'll have to wait till breakfast. So those are those boundaries, those love with limits boundaries that I teach a lot on my blog and talk a lot on the podcast uh, because, you know, we want to set up that framework that I was mentioning before that, you know, your family, your children can work within your framework, but it's very supportive. It allows them to make choices for themselves and allows those choices to play out. Um, and sometimes kids don't always make great choices and they don't always feel good after they make those choices. So again, bringing that conversation in to have a, a dialogue with your child about how he is feeling and why that might be that way and helping them make different decisions. I love that so much. And I and I think that it's really reassuring to hear that coming from you because I think that feeding is so emotional and mm-hmm. primal that parents, when they hear that their child doesn't feel good or still feels hungry, there's something that kicks in where <laughs> parents lose their you know, their uh, way. Yes. <laughs> and they just want to like solve the problem. Like they just want to like, mm-hmm. okay, what, here's a bowl of cereal. Like, or here, you know, they just want to make their kid feel better or feel right. full or feel sated. There's something so uh, uncomfortable for parents mm-hmm. and about, that is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is so true. Parents don't want their children to suffer. But if we take it back to that child development conversation, We empower our children when they can figure these things out for themselves. We really do. And, you know, one of the developmental stages in childhood, for example, is this ability to be capable, to have skills and to feel capable. Um, And when children feel like they can make decisions about eating and they can deal with the repercussions and then make different decisions, they actually get empowered and they start to trust themselves and they learn how to navigate other situations uh, down the road. Oh, I love that. So we keep talking about sugar mm-hmm. and these are great strategies, but why do we talk so much about sugar? Is it really the nemesis that we think it is? Is it really? I mean, there's been so much press over the last few years. I mean, some people even suggest that we should stop eating sugar altogether. Hmm. You know, is it is it really that bad for us? Well, it would be a sad world if we had to get rid of all <laughs> I mean, the sugar, I think. Megan and I agree. <laughs> we agree. I happen to love uh, dessert and sweets. Um, so do we. <laughs> I think. I think what has happened, though, over time, is that we have a lot of su- of hidden added sugar in our foods, our everyday foods, things that we're not really thinking are sugary foods. And not that we have to become professors in added sugar and start to really regulate that, but it does help parents to be aware of where the hidden sugar is hiding and to be able to make substitutions when they can. So, you know, there are two different types of sugar. There's added sugar, which I tell my families, it's the sugar that gets added. You know, if you're making cookies, you're adding sugar. You know, if you have coffee with sugar and cream, not that you would feed that to children, you're adding sugar. That's added sugar. There are also sugars that just naturally occur in food. And those are fruit. There's a sugar called fructose. And that's Mm -hmm. naturally occurring in fruit. Uh, There's a sugar called lactose, and that is naturally occurring in dairy products. So we're not really talking about the natural sources of sugar. We're talking about the added sources of sugar. And we do know from several studies that children are getting more and more added sugar in their diet. Um, There was a study back in 2012 that showed that children two to five were getting around 200 extra calories a day from added sugar. Whoa. 300 calories a day for six to 11-year-olds and 400 for the 12 to 18-year-old. Added sugar. Yeah. That's not counting what's included in fruit and milk. That's just plain old added sugar. And it's mostly coming from sugary beverages, desserts, candy, um, those, those sorts of foods. The point is you know, we do have guidelines, and that's where that 90-10 rule comes into play. The World Health Organization suggests 5% or less from added sugar. Uh, the American Heart Association and the Dietary Guidelines suggest 10% or less. So I combine fun foods. I, I use fun foods 10% coming from, you know, sugary foods and fried foods. So it's a balance. 
between those yeah. two. But in terms of hidden sugar, there are foods that are out there that are sources of hidden sugar. Like uh, I see a lot of families using pre-prepared meals, you know, teriyaki chicken in a bag. You just heat up yeah. and add the pasta to. Those tend to be high in added sugar. Uh, yogurts, anything that's flavored, uh, fruit added, candy on the top, those carry yes. a lot of added sugar. Uh, sports drinks, uh, another item that's popular with children. And I talk a lot about that in my book, Eat Like a Champion, because it is appropriate for some children to have sports drinks. But, you know, the four-year-old who's, you know, touting around yes. a sippy cup full of sports yes. drinks, it's not appropriate for them. Cereal, another source of added sugar. Um, I have a guide on my website that, you know, targets healthier cereals that are less than nine grams of added sugar per serving. There are foods that are out there that are hidden sources, and we need to be mindful of those because when you have a lot of those in your diet and then you have, you know, two or three sweets a day, it really does start to get into that overabundant range that we want to sort of minimize in children. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's so worth cutting out some of those sources so that you can have dessert. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, at least I'd say so. <laughs> That's how I would do it, too. I mean, I would. I mean, yeah, exactly. I'd rather have my sugar coming from a dessert than, you know, in my chicken teriyaki. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I know yogurt is a huge one. Yeah. I was shocked. You know, I started doing research on sugar years ago because, well, I'm Greek and we eat tons of yogurt. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they were just starting to put out the kids' flavored Greek yogurts back then. Mm -hmm. I know now there are tons of options, but it was a long time ago. And I was shocked at how much sugar was in them. And now I know yogurt companies are starting to work on reducing the sugar. But still, I mean, just plain Greek yogurt. And I realized that if I just thawed frozen strawberries or blueberries, mm -hmm. they got kind of soggy and juicy, just like the fruit on the bottom of the yogurt. Exactly. <laughs> and it worked just the same. I could put a tiny bit of honey or maple syrup, you know, and then I could control the amount of sugar. Exactly. And it was just the same to my kids. And also sliced bread, mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. realized, had more sugar than I expected. Mm -hmm. You know, not all of them have tons, but when I was just looking to cut out sugar where I just didn't think I needed it, I was pretty surprised at how many of the commercial shelf-stable breads had sugar in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I imagine some of your listeners are sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I can't police all of the different, you know, foods that I'm buying that are potentially loaded with added sugar. And my advice to families who might be feeling a little overwhelmed right at this point <laughs> would be to, you know, focus on the obvious sources of sugar, the candy, the soda, the 100% juice, treats like cookies or, or cupcakes, things of that nature. Focus on those first and sort of get your strategy aligned with that. And then you can start to make substitutions and tweak the added sugar sources. You can start to buy lower sugar cereals. You can use um, I buy Greek yogurt for my family. I get the 5% Greek yogurt, which is a higher fat content, but it's creamy, mm -hmm. it's mild. Add frozen fruit or fresh fruit, a little bit of honey, some granola, and the, the kids love it. So there's there are little things that you can do to tweak that hidden sources of sugar intake. But my advice and what I see in most families is they need to cur curtail sort of the extra sweets the obvious sources first, and then move to uh, titrating those hidden sources. I love that. That's great. That's very manageable. Mm -hmm. So phase two, I would say, which I would say is where I'm at, mm -hmm. what about snacks? So eight 11-year-old, an eight-year-old boy, an 11-year-old boy, both super active, mm -hmm. both crazy, crazy skinny. They burn through calories like I cannot even like, keep up with them. Mm -hmm. And the snack, <laughs> their <laughs> appetite for snacks is so crazy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the snack bar thing is just out of control. They want cliff bars. They want you know, protein bars. And we've found a few. Cliff Bar, Cliff Z bars I get for them mm -hmm. because they just love them. And I, I just, at one point I started buying them and I was like, okay, this is, this is, I concede. 
I'm going to start buying Cliff Z bars. <laughs> and then RX bars, I really like. And I get the kid version because they're smaller. Mm-hmm. And they're all natural. And they only have five ingredients. But it's like packed with dates, which mm-hmm. are very high in natural sugar. It's mm-hmm. not added sugar. But still, and I wanted to ask you about that too, even though it's natural sugar, when you get to those those snack bars, mm-hmm. even though it's not added sugar, you're starting to get super high sugar numbers, mm-hmm. <laughs> super high grams. Mm-hmm. So what do you do about the snacks and those snack bars yeah, to so, keep the sugar down? Right. So I'm a big fan of you know combination snacks for kids. So that means more than one food group. So it might be cheese and crackers. It could be you know cereal and milk. A potato with cheese melted on top, a mini quesadilla with cheese and salsa. So I'm a big fan of real food for snacks and this combination of uh, more than one food group and definitely either a source of protein, fiber, or healthy fat in the mix because that's going to be satiating and it's going to sustain that blood sugar and keep that hunger at bay over time. So in terms of those snack bars that tend to be a little higher in sugar, even though they are, you know, the natural sugar, you can always pair those with, you know, a glass of milk or a banana, half a banana, something like that to sort of dilute out that sugar rush, which can happen. Yeah. Or with some nuts, for example. Again, you're just sort of diluting out the, the sugar as it gets processed in your body. And that can be helpful. But and does fiber help with that? It sure does. Okay. Absolutely. Great. And I, just a shout out for my dairy-free people, because my older son is dairy-free. Yep. Do you have some dairy-free options for like on the go, if like a cheese stick or cheese and crackers isn't an option? Yeah. I mean, if he can have nuts, nuts are always a good option, like a trail mix. You can make your own with um, dried cereal, nuts, dried fruit. And in terms of a non-dairy milk alternative that happens to be high in protein, any of those pea protein-based milks or soy milk, those have a more similar protein profile to cow's milk than any other other, uh, milk alternative out there. So I hear a lot of families using rice milk or almond milk, which... Are wonderful, but they have virtually no protein in them. So they're not going to hold the appetite uh, very much, and they're not going to really be considered a source of protein for an athlete or, you know, for for a child who you're trying to help, la- you know, help them last for two to three hours before they come back asking for more food. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the other part of having this snack strategy, because, you know, we're not only just giving snacks, we want those snacks to keep our child um, hunger-free and satisfied, for a couple hours before the next meal. So I always say to parents, if your child is coming every hour for another snack, you need to re- revamp your snack strategy. It's not working because a really good snack tr- strategy will help your child be okay until the next meal, two or three hours later. And I think that's really interesting because there's such a focus on sugar, but I think that part of it also, specifically with snacks, is that a lot of these high sugar snacks Part of the problem is that they're often empty calories. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of sugar, and then also you don't have the fiber and protein that's going to fill the kid up Mm -hmm. and keep them going so that, you know, they're just getting a sugar rush and they're not even getting full. They're going to, you know, want more food Mm -hmm. and keep coming back and not be sated. Exactly. Exactly. And then probably want more sweets. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> those craveable, yeah. that sugar just makes you want more sugar. It, it does because it bumps up your blood sugar and then it comes down and that kicks in your appetite hormones. And so you're hungry again. Yeah, it's just really, I always say to parents, you know, you want to stay ahead of hunger. Like your strategies should be you want to nourish your child with the food that you serve and you want to feed them positively because you want them to self-regulate and have a good attitude and a healthy relationship with food, but you also want to stay ahead of their hunger and teach them about hunger. So they, um, it all ties in together, but as a parent strategically, if you can stay one step ahead of hunger, um, and you can do that with your snack strategies and your meal plans and, uh, the way you time 
uh, your food and meal, you know, your meals and your snacks, all of that can help you tremendously stay ahead of your child's hunger while also nourishing them and staying positive with feeding. I think staying ahead of hunger is just a good rule of thumb for life in general. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> for us too. For me. <laughs> just stay ahead of hunger. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, Jill, this has been so helpful. There's so much information and we're going to put the links to everything you mentioned on our show notes. And also that way people can start hopping around your site because I know there is so, so, so much more information and so many more resources there. But before we go, Megan and I like to wrap up every episode with something we call Try This at Home because we feel like we're always just talking about these big ideas and we just like to leave our listeners with a very practical piece of advice that people can implement as soon as they stop listening, like that night. So we were hoping that you could share something and if you want to reiterate something you already shared with us, that's fine, something new, but just one try this at home for this week that our listeners can implement, you know, related to sugar or dessert or helping their kids just become more fearless eaters? Oh, there's so much juicy stuff. (laughs) I know. know. (laughs) Um, You have to choose just one. (laughs) I know. I think I'm going to spring a new one on you, though. Oh, good. Okay. So I would challenge your listeners to redefine dessert. So, so many of us think about dessert as cake and cookies and candy and things of that nature, which are fine, which are totally fine, as we've discussed. But some families are just not even 100% comfortable with that. So what I would like those families to do is redefine dessert. Dessert can be sliced strawberries with a dollop of whipped cream. It can be toast with peanut butter and a few chocolate chips on top. You can cut the sugar in recipes, and I know you're you're a culinary expert, and so you know how to do this, but you know whenever you're baking, you can always cut you know, a quarter to a half of a cup of sugar out of those mm-hmm. sweet recipes. So I would challenge your audience to take one, you know, one step in that direction. Either, you know, serve up a dessert that's not your classic dessert and see how your kids respond, um, or if you're baking, cut the sugar and see how it turns out. I love that. And can I just add to that, if, if you don't sure. mind, if I can be so bold, that, you know, I encourage people to do it once and then do it a few more times, even if it doesn't get the big, happy response that you hope for, mm-hmm. because palettes really do change. Mm-hmm. I started doing exactly what you are talking about for myself because of all of us in our family I have the biggest sweet tooth Mm -hmm. and recently my husband pointed out that things that I used to eat all the time I've recently started saying are way too sweet for me Mm -hmm. and I was like oh my gosh you're right my palate has totally changed because I've been reducing the amount of sugar in my baking and just eating, you know, fewer sweets. Mm-hmm. It really like shifted without me even noticing. Yeah. And same goes for our kids. So I love that. Definitely. Definitely. And we know for children, they need to taste things oftentimes seven or eight times before they really like them that way. So repeating that exposure, repeating those offerings is very powerful. I love it. Jill, thank you again so much. We appreciate your time and your expertise and all of your advice. And hopefully we can have you on again someday. Oh, that would be my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I loved listening to you and Jill. I cringe with the audio sometimes when it was just the two of us. I will say we will leave the full episode, like the unedited version of the original and we can link to it in the the show notes for this like episode on your podcast player so you can go back and reference it. And that's also like where you can find out more about Jill too. But uh, we no longer have a Facebook group. So if you go back <laughs> and listen to that, you're not missing out on something. We now have our wonderful community, which you can find at denijustfeedyou.com backslash community. I miss some of the things that we used to do, like uh, we're digging and our lightning rounds, but I do not miss the Facebook group. I know. 
the funny thing about the what we're digging, I remember it being a lot of pressure to come up with stuff every week. Yeah. You'd be like, do I have something? And I'd be like, <laughs> do I have something? Um, and now we can easily do that like for a whole episode. So it's really interesting to yeah, see how far we've come back. Yeah, our recent empties. And Jill is still producing her podcast. She is The Nourished Child, which is the name of her podcast. That's what you can look up on your podcast player. There's also thenourishedchild.com, which has a ton of resources. And then Jill Castle also has her own personal website. It's jillcastle.com. And what I like there is that she has just recently started offering consultations with families. Like uh, pediatric nutrition, you know, consults and practice. So you can find out more about how to work with her directly if that's something that's interesting to you on her website, jillcastle.com. Let's get a sugary thread going in the Didn't I Just Feed You listeners community. Quick fire, two favorite candies, top two favorite candies. Uh, full size, full size or fun Ooh. size? <laughs> Great professional question. Oh my God. I love you so much. Oh, uh, mini. I'm going to go mini. Okay. I love a fun size Kit Kat. Yeah. I think that it's like a great ratio of chocolate to Krispies. Mm-hmm. And then I do love a gummy candy, like just in general. Mm-hmm. So I might choose Swedish fish yes. if it's like from um because like hard to eat a lot of Swedish fish, but like the little pack that you get from your kids' trick or treat basket yeah. is perfect. <laughs> that you steal? I love yeah. it. Okay. Uh no, that's parent tax. Parent tax. <laughs> I taxation on your income. <laughs> taxation children. and no representation. No representation. Okay, what about you? What are your two favorite fun Minis? Size? Uh yeah. fun size baby Ruth, fun size. 100 grand bar. Oh, 100 grand is good. Ooh, I feel like the so chocolate good. quality in 100 grand has declined over the years. <laughs> Probably. But I would still eat it. Oh, it's so good. The caramel, the crispies, the nougat. What is nougat? For another episode, we should uh, <laughs> figure it out. Okay, guys. Okay. If you haven't signed up yet for a free community, do not go to facebook.com. <laughs> go to didn'tijustfeedyou.com backslash community. You can find out about our free community space where there are hundreds, thousands, I think over 2,000 now. There are thousands, yes. Yeah. Home cooks like you sharing recipes, tips, offering support. Uh, meal plans, all that good stuff. You can also find on our website, the supporting membership options, which is where you can find out how to get two bonus episodes every single month and add free stream of the show in its entirety. So again, didn't I just feed you.com backslash community. Check it out. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram where we are at didn't I just feed you a huge thank you to our producer, Samantha Gatsik. I'm Megan and I'm Stacy. Stay sane and well-fed until next time. Be sure to subscribe to Didn't I Just Feed You wherever you're listening. And don't forget to rate and review. 